Morning. Uh, my name is David Soren. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, morning to you. Uh, well, before we get started this morning, uh, let me just remind you that we are now just 13 days away uh, from our first of six Easter services, which means it's time to start praying. In fact, today is the start, the official start of our incredibly important 8,000 minutes of prayer. Uh, if you want to know why we had uh, 2,000 people at Easter last year, uh, and a whole lot of people stand up and surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, it starts right here. It starts in prayer. It's nothing fancy that we did. It's that we're asking God to move through us. And so we've been saying for a long time now that we're looking for 191 of us to commit to pray for three minutes a day for the next 14 days starting today. We have 168 people signed up so far. So we need 23 of you, 23 of you before you leave today to say, you know what, I'll pray. I'll just pray three minutes for the next 14 days that God just does an amazing thing again here on Easter weekend at Renovation Church. If that's you, when you leave today, stop at the hallway table, just pick up a prayer packet and and, uh, sign up your name. And let's just pray that Jesus saves a whole bunch of people. Uh, Personally, I'm praying that we see over 100 people uh, stand up and surrender their lives to Jesus. Uh, Would you pray that with me? It's a bit audacious, but we serve a big God. So would you just pray with me for the next 14 days? Would you pray that we see over 100 people stand up and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And then better yet, pray that you know one of those 100 people, right? That's one of the main reasons that we want you praying for the next 14 days. Do you believe that it's possible for God to do an amazing thing in your brother's life or your coworkers or your neighbor's life if you just prayed for God to save them for the next 14 days? Because if you pray, God can move. All right, we don't know his will. We don't know his timing. But we want to pray like we believe that he can. And if we believe that he can, then we have to move, right? You always pray and then you move. So you ask God, and if you believe that you can, he can, then we step out in faith, right? And then we invite them. We ask them to come, trusting in God's will. In fact, I don't know if you have uh, invite cards yet or not. Many of you do. Some of you don't. Uh, it's a, a nice tool to invite someone. If you look under your chair right now, right on top of the Bible, uh, there are four invite cards, two that are more uh, kid-focused for uh, egg, kind of egg hunt focus, and two that are not. They're just more for Easter services. If you know someone who they're 25 and single and they're not pumped about an egg hunt, right? That's helpful for, for them to have. And so grab them. This is such a great opportunity. Easter Sunday, or Saturday in this case, is the easiest weekend of the year to invite someone to. So I pray that God uses you over the next 13 or 14 days. Okay, uh, today is a fun day at Renovation Church uh, because every year we study a different book of the Bible together. And this morning we are going to start off our book uh, for 2018, uh, which is the Gospel of Luke. Now, uh, we find at Renovation <coughs> that there is great value sometimes in just studying a particular topic in Scripture, but there's also great value in just walking through a Bible verse by verse and seeing what it teaches. And so we actually do both of those things here. Uh, Luke is one of the four accounts or books of Jesus' life. We call those books the Gospels. Uh, Luke uh, was a doctor. Uh, he was a companion, actually, of the Apostle Paul. So on a, a number of Paul's missionary journeys, Luke was with him. Uh, and as a medical man, as a scientist, uh, Luke was incredibly serious about getting the facts about Jesus correct. 
So I'd love for you, as we start to, to follow along today, there's a Bible under your chair, uh, or you can use the Renovation Church app. Uh, we're going to be on page 830. If you want to use the app, you just tap on Bible in weekly verses. And what you're going to see here is that Luke is incredibly concerned about the facts. In fact, look at how he starts off this book. He's addressing it to what many presumed was a, a man who was a person who held an important office in the Roman government. So this is page 830. Here we go. First verse of the whole book. We're starting it off. It's going to be great. Uh, Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 1. Here's what, here's what Luke writes. <clears throat> he says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the, excuse me, who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's who he's writing this book to. So that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So this is kind of cool. Luke lets you know right from the beginning that he has relied on written sources, that he's relied on eyewitness testimony, and that he has personally and carefully investigated all of these facts. And so this is really important. As C.S. Lewis once famously said that the Gospels read nothing like legend. Right? This is not like Paul Bunyan. He's going through eyewitness testimony here. Luke is the longest book in the entire New Testament. And so this is going to take us a while to get through. Now, we, we rotate through verse-by-verse verse, uh, series and topical series. And so with that in mind, getting to the Gospel of Luke is most likely going to take us three years to do. Now, I think just for the mix of pace, what we're probably going to do with this is uh, maybe next year in 2019, maybe we'll actually we'll get a third of the way maybe through Luke this year. Maybe in 2019 we'll study a letter in the New Testament. Maybe after that we'll study the Old Testament. But perhaps the year after that we'll come back, study uh, the second third of Luke. We'll kind of, we'll kind of mix it up, but eventually uh, over the next few years we will walk through this book, which is one of the most important uh, in the New Testament. And I think another reason that I really wanted to do Luke is Renovation Church has been open for about... Oh, about 450 Sundays now since we've started. And out of all the genres in the Bible, I feel like we've spent the least amount of time in the Gospels. And so I think this will be really good for us to walk through. Now, the name of this series that we're doing for Luke, we're calling it Lost and Found. And it comes from what is considered by many the theme verse of Luke. It's Luke 19.10, and it says this, For the Son of Man, which is the title for Jesus, came to seek... And to save the lost. This is the main point of the book. The idea that we were lost and Jesus came to save us. So let me just give you some context on what's happening in history here. And so what we're going to do, we've been studying Exodus in the Old Testament for much of the last year of 2017. That was our book. And so I'm going to bring you up to speed from the book of Exodus all the way to the book of Luke in less than 60 seconds. Okay? Ready? All right. So, we leave the book of Exodus, and the Israelites are trapped, they're not trapped, they're lost in the desert, wandering around. Well, they finally do make it into the promised land. They get there, they have some judges kind of leading them, but eventually they just keep getting routed by their enemies, and so they beg God for a king. That's actually what we studied in 2015, when we studied the book of 1 Samuel. Well, 1 Samuel ends with Saul, the first king, dying, and David becoming 
king. And that happens about in history at the year 1000 BC, so 1,000 years before the New Testament starts. Well, Israel's uh, history continues. They split into two, Israel in the south, excuse me, Judah in the south, Israel in the north. Most of the kings leading them are just wicked people. There are a few good kings like uh, David and Josiah and Hezekiah. But because most of their leaders are wicked, as a punishment, God sends the Assyrians to exile the Israelites in the north, and he sends the Babylonians to exile the people of Judah in the south. And the city of Jerusalem falls in the year 586 B.C. And so the people of Judah... This is where we get the term Jews from. They eventually become the Jews. The people of Judah are exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. And while the Jewish people are in exile, we get the stories of, of Daniel and Esther and many of those great stories. But after 70 years, they begin returning to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. Uh, Nehemiah and his friends rebuild the wall. And you still have prophets like Zechariah and Malachi that are prophesying to the people up until the year 400 B.C. And then for 400 years, there is silence. Nothing. No major prophets, no major moves from God. And finally, after 400 years, God is going to do something amazing. And the first thing that happens, the very first thing that happens in the New Testament is not actually when the angel appears to Mary. But actually, the first thing that happens in the New Testament is our story today, which predates the angel and Mary story by about a few months. And Luke is actually the only gospel author that records this particular event. So let's go to verse 5 now in the chapter of Luke. Here's our story for the day. It says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all of the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless, so they were unable to ever have kids, because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Okay, stop there just for a couple seconds. So you got this guy named Zechariah. He's a priest. And he was actually automatically a priest because he was a male descendant of Moses' brother, Aaron, who was the very first priest of the Israelites. Now, at this time in history, at the time of Jesus, there were literally thousands of Jewish priests. Uh, we're told that Zechariah is a priest in the division of Abijah, which was actually one of 24 different divisions of priests they had at that time, managing the temple affairs. And so each of the different divisions would spend two weeks a year. They would travel to Jerusalem, and they would manage the affairs of the temple for two weeks, and then they would go back home. All right, let's continue the story. Verse 8 says, Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, so now he's in Jerusalem at the temple, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. All right, let me just stop, stop again for just a second, because some of the stuff, because it's referencing practices of the Old Testament, we're not all that familiar with. So Zechariah and his priestly friends in his division, they're in Jerusalem for 14 days. And every day of the 14 days, they would cast a lot. So think like uh, rolling a dice or you know, drawing straws. And once a day, just one of the thousand or so priests 
and his division would be picked to go inside of the temple and burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, if you were here back in February when we uh, talked about the tabernacle in Exodus, this was one of the important items that was in the tabernacle, and now they've sort of remade these items, and they're in the temple. And so Zechariah is going to get to go into the temple, not quite to the Holy of Holies, but to the second closest place called the Holy Place. And he's going to get to do this special thing. Now, this would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a priest. And for many of the priests, it actually never happened. Their name never got drawn. And so this is basically the biggest moment of Zechariah's life. And so what would happen is the priest would go into the holy place, they would put incense on the fire, and then the smoke would rise up out of the temple, and all of the worshipers, there would be just throngs of them gathered outside the temple, would see the smoke rising up to heaven, and that was supposed to be symbolic of their prayers going up to God. So this is an incredibly important moment, most important moment of his entire life. So watch what happens when he goes into the temple. Verse 11 says, Then, so he's in the temple, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled. He was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord. This is going to be before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents, to, excuse me, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until, this day, until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And he would remain so until John the Baptist was born. And so eventually, his wife Elizabeth gives birth to this boy named John, who becomes John the Baptist, who is this incredible great prophet who paves the way for Jesus. But today's story is mostly about John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. So Zechariah, he's in the temple, right? And all of a sudden, there's an angel there. And the angel Gabriel tells him that his prayer has been answered. They're finally, they're finally going to have a child who's going to pave the way for the Messiah. And look closely. I want, to, I want to just look at one more verse again from this passage. I just want to read it again. Verse 18. Look at this. Look at Zechariah's words. He says, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? Do you see the doubt, the unbelief? I am an old man, 
and my wife is, no, he doesn't say his wife is old, right? He says, well, along in years. <laughs> he, was, he was politically correct before it was cool to be politically correct. Okay, so why doesn't Zechariah fully believe? Well, for one, it just doesn't seem possible for him, right, considering their age. And secondly, this is a subject matter that Zechariah and Elizabeth probably gave up praying about years ago. Right? We've all been in this place. You've been asking God to do something in your life. Right? Maybe you've been asking God to heal your marriage for the last 10 years, and he just hasn't yet, and so you just kind of gave up praying about it. Right? Maybe you've been asking God forever now to bring your spouse to Christ. Right? That your parents would surrender their lives to Jesus Christ, or, or that your best friend, or whoever, and it just hasn't happened yet. And if anything, you look at, maybe you're even your adult child who's not following Christ, and they look farther away from Christ than ever before, and so we just kind of stop praying about it. Right? You were praying to have kids. You were praying to get married. You were praying for your anxiety to leave. You were praying for your addiction to finally go away, and it just hasn't happened, and so... We just kind of stop praying about it. I want you to think of your spiritual life in, in prayer this way. Imagine metaphorically here that your life is like a mansion with 40 different rooms. And each room of your life is a different category of your life that God could potentially move in. So your different relationships are different rooms throughout the mansion. Your emotions or a room, your finances are a room, you walk down the hallway, your health is a room, you walk down some more, your career is a room, all different areas of your life that God could move in. And if you've been in that place, which most of you have, where you have prayed and you have prayed and you have prayed and you have shed some tears and you prayed some more, and yet God is not doing what you're asking, many of us Rather than persevering in prayer, like see Luke 18, for example, like we're told to, what we do is over time, we walk over to that room where God isn't answering our prayer, and we just close the door. And then with tears sort of rolling down our cheek, we tape up the sign on the closed door, and we write, God doesn't move here. And we walk away from that closed door. It's shut. God doesn't do that. Where are you doing this in your life right now? Where is that room that you used to stand in and just beg God to move? For whatever reason, whether you slammed that door or you just backed out slowly over time, you don't go in there anymore. Where have you closed the door to his movement. In fact, ask yourself this question. What have I stopped praying about? What have I stopped praying about? Let me tell you one of the reasons that this question is so important. This is a biblical truth that we're just being taught in this particular passage. The place where God hasn't answered in the past is the hardest place for us to believe that he will answer in the future. 
The place in your life where God just hasn't been answering, that room that you've been going to and it's not happening, the place where God hasn't answered in the past is actually, for all of us, it's the hardest place for us to believe that God will answer in the future. In fact, I believe that it actually would have been significantly easier for Zechariah to believe the angel if the angel Gabriel would have just promised him different things. Like, hey, I just want to tell you, Zechariah, you're going to be rich. You can just see Zechariah going, oh, that's great. Thank you, right? Or, hey, Zechariah, uh, I'm going to extend your life even longer. You're going to live to 110 years. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. That's wonderful. But this one is just different, right? Zechariah's unbelief it arises out of a past hurt. But you can almost, in Zechariah's words, you can almost feel this sense of, I'm sorry, you're going to do what now? Like, where were you when I was 25? Where were you when I was 35? And God didn't move. He didn't move. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. I fasted, I cried, I screamed, I prayed, and he didn't move. Have you been there? See, the place where God hasn't moved in the past is actually the hardest place for us to believe that he will move in the future. This is one of the reasons that God gives us this story in the scriptures. He wants you courageously, daringly, to begin in your mind and heart, walking back, taking a survey of that mansion of your spiritual life and going, all right, what doors have I closed? What doors have I said, God doesn't, God can't, God won't move here? What have you stopped praying about? I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, okay, but just because I want something to happen just because I just keep praying about it doesn't mean that automatically it's going to happen, right? What about God's will? It kind of needs to be in God's will. And you're absolutely right. In fact, you might pray about something you want to happen the rest of your life, and it might not happen because it's not in God's will. And see, a lot of us, you know, we're smart, right? You're educated, maybe you've been around Christianity for a while. And so we sort of, we put those facts together. You're like, I could pray about this my whole life. And he won't answer it if it's not in his will. And so knowing that, most of us think, you know what? I think that I would just be happier if I just close the door and just put the sign up. God doesn't do that. If I just stopped going to that room and asking God for that. I mean, this is what Zechariah's unbelief arises out of. It's not that he doesn't want to believe, Gabriel. Of course he does, Right? wanted that his whole life. He's just protecting himself from disappointment by not setting his expectations too high. We do this all the time. We do this all the time, even in just incredibly earthly things, right? Like this week, the Minnesota Vikings signed quarterback Kirk Cousins to their roster, right? If you're not a football fan, great quarterback, great move for the Minnesota Vikings. And most Vikings fans, right, because we've been hurt in the past, right? We, we hear that and we say things like, well, you know what, I, we wouldn't say, oh, I think the Vikings are going to the Super Bowl now. People from Minnesota say things like, I'd just love to see us make the playoffs again, <laughs> right? And so the lower we set the bar, then the lower the risk of disappointment. Uh, Pastor Ben Patterson says it this way. Paradoxically, the happiness 
of unhappiness is that it's reliable. You can always count on it. There's no risk in believing. And so we sit in our lives and we look at our family members that we've been praying for to come to know Christ and it just isn't happening. And we just start saying, maybe God's never going to do this. Right? Maybe we'll never get pregnant. Maybe we'll... And rather than risk continuing to go to that room and plead with our Father in heaven, we've resigned to just stop praying about it. It just feels safer for our heart. It may feel safer, but I just want to tell you this morning, it is not better for your heart. This is what I call the robbery of unbelief. Our unbelief robs us of the joy of believing God for the impossible. Our unbelief robs us of growing in our faith. See, every time you walk down the hallway and you close another door and you say, "Mm, God's not going to do that. God doesn't do that. God can't. Every time you close another door, it shrinks the size of your faith a little more. Because you said, here are the things that God cannot do. And your faith just keeps getting smaller and smaller. One of the things that we can do in Luke chapter 1 is we can contrast the faith of Zechariah and Mary. Now, when we go through Luke, we're actually going to jump over the Christmas stories because you've heard teaching on the Christmas story a lot of years of your life at this point. But when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, hey, you're going to have a baby, name him Jesus, Mary rejoices with song right away. Zechariah, though, is unable to speak until his son is born. His unbelief has robbed him of joy. Now, notice here in Scripture, despite the fact that Zechariah has this unbelief, God is going to move anyway. That's a good principle for us to understand. Zechariah's unbelief would cost him his voice, but it would not cancel God's plan. You see, what God wants for you is not to settle for the safety of unbelief. He doesn't want unbelief to rob you of your joy. He wants you, as a follower of Christ, to be the person that daringly leaves open every room and every door. But this is what makes us people of faith, right? That we believe God for everything. Like, we don't know his exact will. We ask for it, right? But while we pray, we believe. We never stop believing, even when it looks impossible. This is why I personally believe that the Old Testament story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is honestly one of the most instructive stories in the Old Testament for the life of faith today. If you're not familiar with the story, it's these three friends in the Old Testament, godly people. They're asked to bow down to the statue, and they say, no, we will not. So Nebuchadnezzar arrests them. He brings them in. He gives them one more shot before they're about to be thrown into the blazing furnace as punishment. And here's what they say. Daniel chapter 3 says, they say this, if we are to be thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. I just love that. See, that is your task as a believer. Not to close a door. Ever. Right? That 
even if you're at the point in your life where they're throwing you into the blazing furnace, that you would yell out, my God is able to save me. And even if it isn't his will, it doesn't matter. If he wanted to, he could. See, when an angel shows up in your life, know how to talk to it. When an angel shows up, when God's ready to do something in your life, you don't want that to happen behind a door that you've already closed. But you don't want to miss it. Don't let unbelief rob you of that joy of God moving through you again. Now, if you go back through your life and you start opening up doors and you start saying, God, you're leaving here today. You say, I haven't prayed about this in five years, but I'm just, I'm going to live a life of belief, not unbelief. Now, this is a bit risky, right? I'm not saying that's going to be easy. I think it'll be hard, actually. I just want to tell you it's worth it. Just think of it this way. Okay, what were the scenarios in your life that caused you to believe in God in the first place? Or the scenarios that caused you to really grow in your faith? They were probably scenarios where God did something and it caused you to say, how is that even possible? Well, if that's true, then open back up some of those doors that you've closed because it's usually his movement in the unexpected rooms that grow our faith, right? See, but if we just operate like most people, and we continue to just close more and more doors over time, saying, mm, God doesn't do that. He never did that. He hasn't do that, so he won't do that. If we continue to just close another door for each year that we get older, then what will happen is as you age, and I've watched this happen with people, what will happen is as you age, you will reduce God to someone who only answers in safe and predictable ways. Well, then guess what? Your faith just eventually gets reduced to some sad, tiny little corner of your life. So instead, what I want for you this morning is I want you to look unbelief in the eye and say, stop robbing me of my joy. Stop it. Remember, this is hard. This is harder than keeping the door closed, but you don't get to see the miracles that happen behind closed doors. You're just going to be able to be a first-hand witness to so much more if you live a life of belief and not unbelief. I've seen this played out in my own life over the last couple of years. I've mentioned to you guys a lot over the years that I don't particularly have the gift of faith. I believe I have faith, but for some of you, faith in the impossible just comes easier than it does for me. And so this is something I've worked on a lot over the last couple of years. And so as I've gone back through mentally through that sort of mansion in my life and started to, oh man, push open some doors again that I've had closed, here's what I've noticed in my own life. I find that even though it feels like, oh, this is going to bring so much weight back into my life to do this, I find that it's actually making my heart lighter. It's scary, but here's what I feel like is happening in my life. I feel like I'm trading in the heaviness of an attitude that says, God's never going to do this. I'm trading that in for the lightness of, but what if he did? And it's brought, actually, I, f- I felt like that's just going to make it worse for me, but I feel like it's bringing more of a lightness to my life than a heaviness. Not sadness, but joy. God, he, God he, he's, so, he's so worth it. Can you just trust him? Can you trust his timing and not yours? See, when God didn't answer Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer to give them a child, as they got older, 
they just sort of closed the door, right? And they closed the door, why? Because they thought they knew everything there was to know about God's timing. But let me ask you a question. What if, what if God would have answered Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer while they were in their 20s? Right, they're 25 years old, they're 29 years old, and they're on their knees and saying, God, all of our other friends are having babies. And they're looking at me like, what's your problem? Would you just give us a baby? I'll say God answers their prayer. What would have happened? What would they have gotten? They would have gotten just another priest. Another temple worker in the line of Abijah. Right, that's nice. But see, God had a much greater plan. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth were indeed the very parents on earth that God wanted to raise one of the greatest prophets to ever live. But if God would have answered their prayers while they fasted and cried and prayed at 25 or at 35, then the timing would have been all wrong. John the Baptist would have come a few decades too soon. I suspect Zechariah and Elizabeth wouldn't have matured enough yet to be able to raise such an incredible man. But see, no, God had the perfect plan. And so I just want to say to you this morning, keep your doors of faith open no matter what. We've got to be people of faith, not, not people who avoid risk so they can feel better. Please consider that it is possible that God has a long-term plan that is even better than if he fulfilled your wants right now today. Dare to believe that God may be denying you the good you want now because in his perfect plan, he has an even better will for you later. And dare to believe that even if he never gives you what you're praying for, that his will is right. Always believe that God has something better. Keep every door open. Let me pray. God, we just, uh, we pray that we as a church would be people of open doors. That we wouldn't shrink our faith and that we would believe that you could do because you are God, that you could answer everything. So teach us to be people of belief and not people of unbelief. We just love you so much. Amen.